0: A brave new world. The Fury Theory starts right now. The Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. We are at war with a virus, but we are also at war with fear, a failing economy, and a global supply system that makes America vulnerable. I'm joined by John McGilligan, CEO of York Exponential, and a great friend of The Fury Theory. John, how are you holding up during these very depressing
1: times? Morning, John. Well, uh, we're doing okay. Uh, You know, our community is rallying together. Um, We've been excited to see how people are supporting each other. My team, um, we actually got opened back up because we do some work with some pharmaceutical and medical device companies. And uh, and quite frankly, robots don't get sick. So from a business standpoint, uh, things have been growing pretty quickly for us. Um, The flip side of this, though, is obviously we understand the pain that a lot of folks are feeling. So... uh, We're hoping that as Americans we can come together and really push through this.
0: So when you were last on the show you talked about the York Plan, uh, the original York Plan that really started during this right before the Second World War. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the history and then we'll get to York Plan number two?
1: Yeah so um so to just to remind your viewers In the spring of 1940, before the United States had officially entered World War II, uh, most of the nation wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, They believed the Nazis were someone else's problem. Uh, We were protected by two oceans. But the leaders in York realized that whether they wanted the war or not, it was coming. And uh, we weren't ready and we needed to get ready. So four families were nominated from within the manufacturing community. They were given six months and three guiding principles to come up with a plan. The first, everything from now on is about facing this one challenge. Didn't matter what, (coughs) what other people said. It didn't matter um, if people thought it wasn't our problem. The reality is the war was coming whether we wanted it or not. We need to get ready. And the second was, for the time being, we put aside all political differences and wholeheartedly support the president preparing our nation for the coming challenge. So this wasn't really a statement about the president. It was more a statement about us. Um, and it wasn't that our differences weren't important. They were. They just weren't as important as what we were about to face, and we could deal with them later. And the last was, with all grace, they'd seek advice and counsel from every member of society. So the richest people sat down with the poorest, the owners of the factory sat down with the workers, even kids, because they realized a plan that didn't include everyone would be an incomplete plan. So after six months and using these three guiding principles, they later announced what would be called the York Plan. And um, it was actually a 15-point outline that was everything San Francisco has been doing for the last 15 years. A sharing economy popped up around tools, accelerated education, people were upskilled on a weekly, sometimes daily basis. Manufacturing became Uberized, so competitors traded the downtime of their equipment. No one could build a tank, everyone could build a piece. So, very quickly, all of Pennsylvania pivoted towards defense very, very fast. Well, when war was declared, the president didn't have a plan, sent out a request for proposals, and the York Plan was one of the plans adopted by default because it was already in motion. Uh, it actually got adopted under the slogan Do what you can with what you have, became a national model, spread through rotary clubs. After the war, everybody forgot about it, went back to their corners. In fact, up until recently, the only mention of it in York, Pennsylvania, was a mural in a McDonald's parking lot, and so I actually
0: let me jump in right now and hey. just kind of you know that that history is so important, and the president has been talking about using this virus and going to war with this virus. I actually wrote a column about the 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 the, the, the real the, the differences that, and the similarities between getting ready for World War II and getting ready for a pandemic. And in both ways, we are not, not that well prepared, although a lot of smart people wanted to get prepared. I think part of that is because business doesn't really like to think about bad things happening. They, they like to plan, but they don't really want to plan for the black swan. Right. Now, we're talking about York plan 2.0 and how we really go after this pandemic. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that? Because right now, we are really reeling from this terrible, terrible uh, reaction to the virus.
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of things that are happening right now, right? So I think this is, if anything, it's shown the need to, for us to have our manufacturing base back here. The ability to produce things quickly. You know, the fact that we didn't just outsource iPhones and TVs and toys. We outsourced medical devices. I mean, clearly, this has shown a weakness, right? Add to that the fact that some of the most susceptible folks – are in the age bracket in manufacturing of the average age. I think it's like 57 years old or something. So this has shined a light on a lot of things that we've maybe kicked the can down, but this also presents an incredible opportunity. I think the parallels between, you're right, with World War II and now, some are similar, some are different. Same thing with the York plan. Um, This isn't just about a manufacturing push, though. I think a manufacturing piece is necessary, and the same way the first York plan you know, we needed to start pivoting to make different kinds of technologies. I think now we're in this compressed timeline, right? So we don't have those six months anymore. Um, I think everything's kind of crashing in now. So you're right. There's a lot of parallels, but there's some other stuff that is going to require much different kinds of thinking, different kinds of tools. So the York plan 2.0 has the similarities of the spirit of the first York plan, but it's a much different phased rollout. It's, It's three specific phases. The first is to help meet the demand now. And we obviously don't have as robust manufacturing, but we do have some motivated manufacturers. And we have some of the greatest minds in AI, robotics in the world here. So the ability to pair those two up, I think, we can accelerate kind of our response. But the next two phases of the York Plan 2.0 are very different. Um, really, the focus is on how do we upskill a whole generation, right? Like some industries will go away and not come back. Others are going to need to be built very, very quickly, American technology, And so the phase two and the phases three are going to be really more focused on how do we come through this and stronger on the outside. And uh, we can dive into that a little bit more later as well.
0: So one thing I want to talk to you about is uh, the global supply chain. And kind of, you know, this is one of the things that President Trump campaigned on, getting the global supply chain back to the United States. And, you know, a lot of CEOs don't really want to talk about that because they, they make more money when the global supply chain is other places, especially China. But what you've been talking about is really kind of making us more secure by bringing so much of this manufacturing back to the United States. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, and so I think this is is actually probably our tipping point, right? Technology is moving very, very quickly. It's starting to – the pandemic is forcing us to realize the lack of workforce that we have. So there is an enormous gap in manufacturing. The reality is those kids don't want to do those same jobs, right? They're not going to. So you're seeing China right now um, ramping up their robot production. Like, they're actually not sending people back to their factories. They're starting to think strategically around how do they put robots everywhere. So for us to remain competitive, I think we're now hitting a point where as we bring manufacturing back, it can't look like manufacturing from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It has to look very different. And so I think this idea of augmenting the workforce with American-made robots, which I think is going to be a uh, primary focus. So we're going to have to start really ramping up the production of our homemade technology is the one. And two, the way to be competitive is to use humans and robots together. I mean, we're going to have to use some level of automation. Um, the truth is bring the kids in to do the jobs that they want to do, you know, upskill them, find a way for our current workforce to remain viable, augment them, increase productivity by adding technology. But we have to understand that that we truly are entering and industry 4.0 and John another thing to really focus on is this idea that we really need to open source this technology right especially within robotics robotics has been siloed by a couple big players whether it's ABB KUKA um, it's been one of the things that's actually slowed robotic production down but we are hitting a point where um, for example we have ROS, the robot operating system um, it was a DARPA funded program several years ago and it's actually started to pick up a lot of steam so this ability for us to have an American operating system that technology can be built on very, very quickly, this is probably one of the first times we can do this. Also, you know, a lot of people are quarantined. Like, we don't know when schools are going to open back up again. So we can either be staying at home and Netflixing and chill, or we can Netflix and skill, right? Like, we can use this opportunity of being stuck home to upskill a whole generation. And this idea of open sourcing, building a new platform for American technology to be built upon, even leading into... um the next generation of American industrialists, right? Like I often say this, people ask like, what's it like being an entrepreneur? I'm like, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm an industrialist. And so we actually have an opportunity to leverage some of the open source tools that are out there, upskill a full generation and create the next great American generation of companies that 100 year companies, 200, 1,000 years. We could grow through this, but I think it's gonna take all of us coming together and in the same spirit of the first York plan, do what you can with what you have. And a lot of these open source tools are already available, have already been developed, and anybody can learn how to do this.
0: So the upskill in Chill is not really easy to do if you have a seven-year-old. Um, you know. And many parents are not really good at homeschooling. I, I'm not, for example. Um, you're really kind of talking about trying to come up with a brand new curriculum for people t- to learn and with with, you know, lectures, the whole nine yards, because this t- this is complicated stuff. And this yeah. is not really meant for seven year olds, is it
1: no Well, so so I think the key is going to be exposure. Right. I mean, one of the things I think that's held us back a little bit is um, a lot of parents would say, you know, I'm not really tech savvy, so I'm going to stay away from that kind of stuff. The reality is we do have enormous platforms. Like Netflix is a good example of this, right? It already has an AI engine. It does recommendations. So while maybe um, being seven years old, it's a little bit harder to to learn, but it's not too young to start, right? Like to see where their natural uh, proclivity is, which kinds of technology do they gravitate to? What different types of skill sets do they have, even at a young age, have that kind of interest? I think very quickly we're moving into the lifelong learning category. Like, we can see how fast everything can change in a short period of time. And you've actually got a whole generation of kids. You know, will colleges be around? You know, a lot of four-year institutions are going to be struggling with this. Now, Carnegie Mellon will be fine, and MIT will be fine. But a lot of these other universities are going to struggle deeply. So will there be a whole new education platform? And so I don't think it's ever too young to start. And the reality is, I don't think you're ever going to be too old either. There is a lot of people that their careers are gone. You know, I think 30% unemployment is kind of what we're hitting. I can tell you right now with the Fortress Academy, I have bartenders, um, servers reaching out to me now to be trained as robot mechanics. I mean, you know, three weeks ago, this never would have been even in their mind, but reality has come crashing in. So the education piece, I don't think everything can be done from a distance and everything can be done at home, but we can start creating maybe a new baseline and give, start to give people those skills and the exposure. So they can at least have an opportunity to bounce back in the fourth industrial revolution.
0: So so John, this is really, you know, I don't, I'm hoping that this um, pandemic doesn't last for four years because if it does, I think we're all dead. Right. Um, but, but your your point is this, is that this is a wake up call. This is a wake up call for us to get our act together on the next economy. And using this York 2.0 is a great jumping off point for a whole society to society to kind of mobilize and educate itself about what the future looks like, right?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a it's a framework, right? It's not an answer to everything, but it's at least a path forward. And be happy to allow some of your listeners to be able to download this and you know dig a little bit deeper into it. But the reality is, I think you're right. Um, you know, it it was never sustainable for us to have um, some of the economic development and the tools that we were using. My background is also in real estate, so I did a lot of economic development. And I left that background several years ago because I realized very quickly a lot of work that was being done in cities was basically turning cities into Chuck E. Cheeses for millennials. Like I viewed all of the money that was being put in, and it was like creating a theme park. And we had, you know, people with bachelor's degrees and master's degrees waiting tables, and I was like, this can't be sustainable. And so I think this pandemic, it showed a lot of what we had done really wasn't sustainable for something like this. And regardless of what you believe and how you believe this happened, it showed a weakness that I think will give our enemies a clear path to disrupting us again.
0: So, John, let's talk about the future and future learning and how important the, a 5G or a 6G world really is. Are we ready to, to do this? I mean, and, and what, do we need, what steps do we need to take to get more ready to be a more connected world? And what are the downsides to that?
1: Yeah, so I think there's two things we're facing right now, right? So there's the long-term vision of making sure we're connected. And I'll talk about that in a second. But the short-term is there are a lot of, um, for example, there are a lot of kids that are going to be left behind in the short term. So whether they're within, uh, you know, traditionally disconnected communities in an urban environment or out in a rural community, when a lot of education now is going to finishing their school year online, there's a whole group of kids that are going to be left behind right? So I think the first step we've got to do is rapidly connect them with hotspots in places like Goodwills. So there's a Goodwill within, I think, 10 miles of 82% of all Americans, right? So there's already kind of this infrastructure there. So I think getting internet connectivity out to the rural and urban communities right now is critical. So that's the first step. And we can do that through hotspots, partnerships with like Motorola, at and Verizon. There are a lot of um, companies starting to step up for that now. But the long term, I think the connectivity is going to be even more critical. I think what this has done is this this has forced us to start evaluating things that before sounded good in principle, but nobody really tried it, whether it's remote working, distance learning. Now we're going to have a whole group of people that now we have some metrics, right? Where it's like, okay, so it actually financially makes sense, which means there might be whole communities that get left behind by businesses, right? They're not employed at all. So I think the connectivity through things like broadband, 5g even stuff like starlink you know when you really start to get real pie in the sky kind of stuff i think these kinds of things that before were seen as maybe gig worker or niche kind of stuff is going to become more the norm so the connectivity is going to be a key the other thing is with the advent of things like um more internet of things maybe quantum cloud computing there's going to be this explosion of technology driving growth and so if some of these communities don't have access to that there's going to be an incredible downside it'll almost be like Trying to run a business without electricity, right? Now you're right though, there is a flip side to this, and that is something I don't think we're ready for at all. Um a lot of this remote working from home has also showed a lot of loopholes we have in our cybersecurity. Um, you know, it's famously, you know, China has been able to access all sorts of different teleconferencing technologies and you know, we had a lot of stuff, like, Zoom. like Zoom, right? <laughs> right. So so we have no idea whether the Chinese government is listening on this. Probably are. Um, okay. But but that is that is something, though, you're right. That is something we really need to be focused on very heavily. If a lot of business and education is going to be done from a distance, it's going to leave a lot of loopholes very, very quickly. So not just the tech side. I think we need to start focusing on the discernment as well. I mean, if you look at all the misinformation on social media, you know, the more connected we get, it also makes us more susceptible to being divided. And you can kind of start to see that as well. Um, so I think there's going to have to be a renewed focus not on only connectivity, but maybe even personal responsibility, like understanding that you need to discern. What? What's, what's uh, personal responsibility? Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll give you a good example. So that's been one of our big frustrations. Not, not frustrations, but when you see kind of how much of our society is reacting to this, you know, you've seen this explosion in TikTok use, right? Everyone's doing these TikTok dance challenges. That is clearly an app that is owned by the Chinese government. I mean, it's, it's bizarre that we've got a whole generation of kids not only um, giving all of their data, but their likeness. So in the advent of deep fakes and being able to take you know videos and manipulate things, these kids are basically feeding their likeness and their sound and all the movements and everything they're doing into a database that could easily be manipulated later. And so I don't think the, the ramifications of what we're doing right now Um, is going to be felt immediately, but I definitely think it's starting to stack up to a level that this pandemic showed a weakness, but the way we respond to this pandemic, I think is going to show a bunch of other weaknesses or strengths.
0: Hey, uh, John, one last thing. I want to talk, you know, one of the great things about what happened with York.1 is that they took the plan and went to Washington and got it implemented nationally. What kind of success have you had going to the White House or going to Washington and getting people to understand the importance of York 2.0.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. This, is, uh, this happened, uh, I don't know, maybe over the last three months, we started to have a lot of success around this, not just with folks in D.C. and different senators and congressmen and, and folks in the White House, but also locally. Like We started to have a lot of um, uh, the governor's action team and, and people at, a, at the governor's level start to visit us. And so we really thought, man, the Yorkland 2.0 is going to really take off. And then all of a sudden coronavirus hits, and we go, well, I guess that's the end of that. But we actually had some, uh, some folks from D.C. and some folks from the governor's office contact us and say, hey, that York Plan 2.0, could it be repurposed for coronavirus response? And I immediately said yes without knowing how I was going to do it. And then over the next two weeks, we worked kind of around the clock, brought in a lot of our partners. And it turns out a lot of the stuff I thought was going to be driven by artificial intelligence, mass unemployment, um, the need to build American technologies, all got pushed right to the forefront with this pandemic. It just happened much, much faster than I thought. So we've actually been starting to get a lot of traction from decision makers um, at, at very high levels. I mean, in, in our state, all the way from, uh, from the mayor up to, I spoke to our governor last week, he asked for a meeting. So as far as like the state side, it's really ramping up. And we've been having pretty consistent conversations with people in and around the White House. So I think it doesn't hurt that the York plan one was from World War II. And there are a lot of parallels, whether in the media or coming out of the White House, around this is kind of like our generation's call to action. So honestly, this might be the right place, right time um, for the York Plan 2.0 to have its time in the sun. But but you're right. I mean, we're facing a very large challenge, and uh, it's going to take a concerted effort. I also think the average person thinks that everyone is working together. I don't think they understand that states are competing with each other. I don't right. think they understand that that we're in a situation that we don't have this cohesive plan so if there was ever a time for something like this to happen i think it's it's now but but my hope is it's not seen as a band-aid like the the first york plan was forgotten right like after it was over everybody went back to their corners my hope is that with the york plan 2.0 it will set a new standard and not just be a mural somewhere downtown that nobody remembers until something bad happens again. So that's really my hope, but yeah, we have been getting a lot of positive feedback from t- local decision makers all the way up to people in DC.
0: Well, well, John, I, I, I will say that I, I think you're a visionary. I think that you've been talking about this long before this crisis happened. I'm glad that you've been working on this plan of New York 2.0. And you know I, I hope that um, all Americans start to understanding that what it, the world was like before coronavirus hit it's going to be much different uh, after the, after we get through this, which I, I think we will get through this. But we we need to get ready. We need to get better supply chains. We need to understand that the future. We need to understand drones. You know how important that is. Um, and I, I think that we can do it. Um, but I really appreciate your vision, visionary leadership, and thank you for joining the Fear Theory podcast
1: brought to you by EFB Advocacy. So appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Thanks for all the work you're doing, man. I mean, I love, I love the op-eds, love everything you're pushing out. I mean, there's a, this is an opportunity. A lot of people are home right now. So this is a time for us to reach a very large audience around this kind of stuff. People need hope. So I appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Thanks, John.